We're going to read the 132nd Psalm. This is a song of ascents. Lord, remember David and all his afflictions, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, surely I will not go into the chamber of my house or go up to the comfort of my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of the woods. Let us go into his tabernacle. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, to your resting place, you and the ark of your strength. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness and let your saints shout for joy. For your servant David's sake, do not turn away from the face of your anointed. The Lord has sworn in truth to David, he will not turn from it. I will set up your throne, the, the fruit of your body. If your sons will keep my covenant and my testimony, which I shall teach them, their sons also shall sit upon your throne forevermore. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provision. I will satisfy her poor with bread. I will also clothe her priests with salvation, and her saints shall shout aloud for joy. There I will make the horn of David grow. I will prepare a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but upon himself his crown shall flourish. Our sermon today is um, Exodus 1. It's verses 1 through 14, and it's entitled Bitterness and Bondage in the Land of Egypt. We're into a new book of the Bible, and uh, I want to tell you before I actually read our sermon text and then we uh, get into the sermon, that this particular sermon, as you can imagine, because it's an introduction into the book of Exodus, is going to be more mechanical there's not going to be a lot of life applications. There's not going to be a lot where I, you can say, oh, that's going to benefit me, you know, in my uh, my walk with my daughter this week or something. And yet, if you take what you hear today and you just simply apply it to yourself, you'll be able to say that God has his hand on Israel. I know where the story ends, and therefore God has his hand on me, and I know that he has a good end for me. So just keep that in mind simply because there's a lot more mechanical um, information coming at you today than possibly you might get in some other sermons. And when we get into the next sermons in two and three weeks from now, I got to tell you what, there are some pictures in Exodus that are just, they're just like from Genesis, things I'd never considered that are just so beautiful and astonishing. But I don't realize these things until I go in and read each individual Hebrew word. So bear that in mind uh, that today will be a little bit different, but uh, I hope that you will enjoy it anyway. Um, from Exodus chapter 1, we read these words. Now these are the names of the children of Israel who came to Egypt. Each man and his household came with Jacob. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin. Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All those who were descendants of Jacob were 70 persons, for Joseph was in Egypt already. And Joseph died, all his brothers, and all that generation. But the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, look at the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And it happen in the event of war that they also join our enemies and fight against us. And so go up out of the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens. And they built for Pharaoh supply cities, Pitom and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. And they were in dread of the children of Israel. 
So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor, and they made their lives bitter with hard bondage in mortar, in brick, and in all manner of service in the field. All their service in which they made them serve was with rigor. As we enter into Exodus here, we should probably look back and see the contrast between what is coming and where we've been. The book of Genesis showed us a snapshot of creation. Exodus is going to show us a snapshot of redemption. In the book of Genesis, we traveled through, believe it or not, 2,370 years of human history. Exodus is only going to take us through about 80. In Genesis, we saw three separate dispensations introduced. Innocence in the Garden of Eden, conscience after the fall, and government at the time of Noah. In Exodus, the fourth dispensation is going to be introduced, that of law. This one dispensation will remain for the next 42 books of the Bible. Only at the end of each gospel will the next dispensation, that of grace or the church age, be introduced. Genesis began with a single line of people carefully selected to lead to a united family called Israel. Exodus will begin with Israel and they will continue to be the focus of God's redemptive plans all the way through to the very end of the Bible. Even during the church age, Israel is still considered a part of God's plans, though temporarily taken out of the highlights and they're placed on the sidelines. In Genesis, we have the beginnings of all things which come from the Eternal Father. In the garden, there was freedom and there was fraternity between God and man. In Exodus, we begin with oppression and bondage leading to deliverance, picturing the work of the Son, the deliverer of his people. Now, I want you to think of that. If the first book of the Bible pictures the work of God the Father, and the second book of the Bible pictures the work of God the Son, then what do you think will be coming in the third book of the Bible? Think about that. Go read the third book of the Bible and see if you're right. I'm sure you will be. Genesis focused on many great individuals as God used them to picture portions of future history. In Exodus, God will almost exclusively use Moses for this one purpose. We could go on for hours and hours discussing what's coming in the book, but we will be looking into it in detail enough until we finish it, and so there's no reason to go too deep in an introduction. Let it suffice to say that because this is a part of God's word, it should be handled carefully, it should be researched completely, and it should be cherished with delight. God chose the details of the book of Exodus to show us the coming Redeemer, who is Jesus Christ. If we keep reminding ourselves of that as we go through this, we should find it an absolute delight to our senses. Our text verse for today comes from Psalm 105. In the, from the 23rd to the 25th verse, it says this, Israel also came into Egypt, and he dwelt in the land of Ham. He increased his people greatly, and he made them stronger than their enemies. He turned their heart to hate his people, to deal craftily with his servants. God directed Israel to go to Egypt, and to Egypt he went. There they prospered until they finally had grown into a great and vast multitude. But they remained united as a people, and they did not assimilate into Egypt. And so they were brought into bondage and into servitude to the Egyptians. At the same time, their bondage was not undeserved. The people of Israel failed to honor the Lord, and so he was not unjust in allowing them to suffer for a time. And I'll support that later. God is never unfair in what he does, nor does God cause misery or trial to occur without a reason. This is a lesson we should continually remind ourselves as we face our own trials. The good news is that if we have called out to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, then there is a time coming when all of these things are going to be behind us. 
We are the redeemed of the Lord, and so he will never leave us, and he will never forsake us. This is a constant theme of God's superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. Our first thought today is the sons of Israel, which is verses 1 through 5. Verse 1, now these are the names of the children of Israel who came to Egypt. Like many of the other books of the Old Testament, the book of Exodus actually begins with the word and. The words in Hebrew are ve'ele shemot b'nei Yisrael. And these are the names of the children of Israel. The word and begins 13 books of the Old Testament. And it shows us that the writers instinctively felt that they were writing words that belonged to a greater book with a unified message. The first five books of the Bible, known as the Torah or the Pentateuch, are all ascribed to Moses. And so this word, and, may seem a little bit less unusual. And yet, it is a completely separate book from Genesis. And so the and at the beginning really is no less notable. The reason we know that this is an, an entirely separate book, distinct from Genesis, is because the first verse begins with the exact same words of Genesis 46, 8. This was immediately followed with a list of uh, all of the people who went to Egypt with Jacob. Now, a recapitulation of that is going to be made. This then is given to show a definite starting point for an entirely new narrative. Like at other times, the Hebrew name of the book comes from the first words. And so it is called Ve'ele Shemot, or simply Shemot, which means names. That's the Hebrew word of the book. The name we use in English is Exodus which is from the Greek, which means going out. Obviously, the going out of Egypt by the Israelites is one of the great highlights of the book, and so it was given that name. Here in the first verse, we can deduce that the book is going to center on the nation of Israel, just as Genesis ended with them as well. God's funnel of chosen people finally settled on this one family, and it is through them that redemptive history will continue for the next 1,570 or so years until the coming of the Messiah. Genesis ended with the death of Joseph. We know that he was born right around the year 2260 from the creation of the world. He lived 110 years, and so his death came at about the year 2370 from the creation of the world. After the death of Joseph, not another word about the time which the Israelites remained in Egypt was given until now, sometime around the birth of Moses. This is a period of about 64 years and so it is somewhere around the year 2,434 from the creation. But the date is not specific. But I also want you to know that the dating of the Bible will become specific again at key points during this book. Verse 1 continues, Each man and his household came with Jacob. The listing of Jacob and his descendants includes 70 names who went to Egypt. However, this was not all who went to Egypt with them. The verse here says, Ish ubetol man and his household. This word for household includes everyone under the authority of the house. It includes wives, children, grandchildren, servants, and so on. It is an all-inclusive statement, and it was used this way in Genesis 14, verse 14. Now when Abraham heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his 318 trained servants who were born in his own house, that word there, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. Abraham's household included many people, possibly in the thousands. If he had 318 fighting men, plus women, plus children, plus old people, and all of that, the final number would have been very large. Isaac inherited and built upon that estate. 
Jacob had a very large company even prior to inheriting Isaac's household. And then the family would have continued to grow in number after that time. In all, there were certainly many, many thousands of people who went to Egypt with Jacob. Though not literal descendants of Jacob, they are included under the umbrella of Israel, and it easily explains the immense number of people who will depart at the Exodus. It's a number recorded at 603,550 men who are above the age of 20. In all, the number will probably be well above 1.5 million people who will go out at the Exodus. This is important to remember for several reasons. The time that Israel is actually in Egypt is only 215 years. If it were only the 70 who were recorded, it would seem incredulous to have such a large number going out. And many scholars just simply dismiss the entire Bible because of that. They say, well, that's just not possible. Secondly, it shows that the people of Israel who are united at Mount Sinai include a vast number of people who are not actually of natural descent. In fact, the vast majority of them probably aren't. And yet they will all be counted within the numbers of the individual tribes as a part of the collective whole. We're going to see this validated in several ways during the next few books of the Bible. Verse 2, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. These four names begin with the list of the sons of Israel who traveled to Egypt with him. The sons here are listed in birth order, and all are sons of Leah, who was Jacob's first wife. But in 1 Chronicles chapter 5, we read this. It says, now the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, he was indeed the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's bed, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, so that the genealogy is not listed according to the birthright. Yet Judah prevailed over his brothers, and from him came a ruler, although the birthright was Joseph's. The birthright, instead of going to Reuben, was given to Joseph. However, from Judah would come the ruler and eventually come the Messiah. Verse 3, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin. These next three are still in birth order by Jacob's wives, Leah and Rachel. Issachar and Zebulun were born to Leah, and Benjamin was born to Rachel. Joseph is left out because he was already in Egypt at the time and is excluded from the list of those who traveled with Jacob. Verse 4, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The four sons were born to the maidservants Bilhah and Zilpah. The first two were born to Rachel's maidservant Bilhah, and the second two were born to Leah's maidservant, Zilpah. And so there is an intentional order and there's a harmony in the listing of these names. First, those born to the legitimate wives in order by birth, Leah and then Rachel, and then those born to the maidservants in order of birth. Only the males are listed here in Exodus, but at the counting of them in Genesis, two women were named as well, uh, Dinah and a lady named Sarah. Despite them being named in Genesis, Jacob could have had, and he certainly did have, many, many other daughters. However, only these two were counted at that time because only they were relevant to the account. The family name travels through the male, so unless there is an additional reason for mentioning a female, they're simply not listed. This does not diminish the role of women as so many people try to claim in the, about the Bible. Rather, it keeps the record straight according to the lines of descent. Verse 5, all those who were descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Now, this might seem arbitrary or unnecessary to begin the book with something that's already been said in the book of Genesis, but it is not. This listing of 70 persons was given with purpose. There's nothing random and there's nothing illogical about it. Rather, it was given again to show us a snapshot of redemptive history. 
The importance of the number 70 is to reveal that Israel is God's instrument for his redemptive works among humanity that lead up to the Messiah. All of humanity, every person on the face of the planet, is derived from one of the 70 names which are listed in the table of nations, which is found in Genesis chapter 10. Those 70 names in Genesis chapter 10 correspond to every person on earth. And they are to be given the oracles of God through the 70 names recorded in this listing, which comprises the covenant people of Israel. This is alluded to in Deuteronomy 32, verse 8, which says this, When the Most High divided their inheritance to the nations, when he separated the sons of Adam, he set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the children of Israel. Seven is the number of spiritual perfection. Most people know that. It is the sum of three, which is the divine number, and four, which is the number of creation. Ten is the number of fullness or completion. Thus, in those who are noted in Jacob's descendants and who have gone down to Egypt, God's divine plans, three, are being worked out in his created order, four, in their fullness. Ten, three times four times ten is seventy, through these seventy people. The list in Genesis is not arbitrary. It's not just some list of names and numbers. Rather, it is a prophetic plan, and it's a symbolic structure of what God would do in history all through man's redemption. We're being reminded of this now at the beginning of Exodus, the book which will introduce the fourth dispensation of God's redemptive plans. God bestowed grace on Adam after the fall, and he kept a select line of people through all those years until the time of Noah, who again received grace in the eyes of the Lord. After the flood, God gave an overall structure of redemption as laid out in the Bible after Noah's time. It, this is an outline of humanity in the 70 named people groups in that table of nations. Following that, what did he do? He called Abraham and made a covenant of grace to the world, declaring him righteous by faith. Through the chosen line of Abraham's seed, he has refined what he will do in the future, giving us pictures of everything that's coming. If you remember those pictures in Genesis, I mean, everything was covered in redemptive history. And this now will continue in the second book of the Bible. This is one of the reasons for this recapitulation of that list right now. Another reason for reminding us of the number is to show that even though they started out very, very small, there will be an immense change in the numbers. This will cause a sequence of events which will demonstrate God's sovereignty, his ability to keep his promises, and the continuance of his redemptive plan for the people of the world. What seems arbitrary is not. Verse 5 continues, For Joseph was in Egypt already. This explains why Joseph's name was left out of the record of the sons of Israel, which were given in the first few verses. Remember the days of old here in the new. Consider the generations long since past. Ask your father and he will tell you, your elders, and they will explain how the plan was cast. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he divided all mankind as his word does tell, he set up boundaries for the peoples, not by chance, but according to the number of the sons of Israel. For the Lord's portion is his people, you see. Jacob, his allotted inheritance throughout redemptive history. Our second thought is the fruitfulness of Israel, which is verses 6 and 7. Verse 6, and Joseph died, all his brothers, and all that generation. Of the 12 sons of Israel who are listed, Joseph's death is the only one with any full record in the Bible. The rest of them are merely mentioned in this cumulative statement right here. We do know, though, from Exodus chapter 6 that Levi will live to be 137 years old, and that's very important when we get there. We're going to talk about why. 
That was 27 years longer than Joseph had lived, but he was also a little bit older than him. Regardless of this, though, they were all dead by the time of the events that we see right here. And so during this period of about 64 years, nothing else is recorded. Of the many weddings, the births, the family vacations, the heartaches, the joys, and all of the other memorable times of the individual lives, God's, remain, God's word remains completely silent. His word is here to tell us details about history, not a complete detail of history. When the two line up, he uses them for his purposes. And when they don't, time eventually swallows up even the memories of what was once the news of the day. Verse 7, but the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. Despite the deaths of the early generation that traveled to Egypt, the growth of Israel was immense. One could ask, how is this possible if the statement from Genesis chapter 46 is true? Because people will argue this. There it said this, So it shall be when Pharaoh calls you and says, What is your occupation? That you shall say, Your servant's occupation has been with livestock from our youth even till now, both we and our, also our fathers, that you may dwell in the land of Goshen. For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Well, if the Egyptians deplored the Hebrews because they were shepherds, and if they were kept in Goshen, separately from the multitudes, then how could they multiply in this way? Again, this takes us right back to the number of people who would have traveled with Jacob. Only 70 were mentioned, but that was for a reason. Within each son's household would have been a large number of people. They would have married, they would have intermarried. The vast number of people who would have grown from them in that 215-year period from Jacob's arrival to the time of the Exodus, along with all of the mixed multitude who leaves with them, could easily reach the numbers that the Bible proclaims. Just because it's only a period of 64 years from the death of Joseph until the birth of Moses, it is a full 215-year period from Jacob's arrival until the time of the Exodus, which occurs when Moses is about 80 years old. During all this time, the Israelites multiplied. And so the Bible gives us this verse to confirm this. The New King James Version, which I use for sermons, doesn't really give the sense of how they're described, though. Listen to Young's literal translation and see how he renders it. And the sons of Israel have become fruitful, and they teem and multiply and are very, very mighty, and the land is filled with them. They were fruitful. In Hebrew, the word is paru. It means that they brought forth children like a tree brings forth fruit. And if you think of Kelly Carlin here, she's got that avocado tree in her yard. And week after week, she brings in avocados. Last year, when we had a big harvest, she brought in so many that they were stacked up, you know, to the roof. This is the, what the Bible is describing about Israel. Just like the avocados keep bearing and bearing, so they kept bearing and bearing. The next thing is they teamed. In Hebrew, the word is yishretzu. This word gives the idea of teeming like fish, which is exactly the sense that is given in Genesis 1.20 when God said that the waters should abound with living creatures. They multiplied. In Hebrew, the word is irbu. This is a separate term, and it is not an adverb, as so many translations make it. And they grew exceedingly mighty. In Hebrew, ve'ya'atzmu bimod me'od. It is a way of saying that their numbers were truly astounding, as indicated by the double superlative, bimod me'od. Very, very. The Bible's just telling us that these people just grew like you can't believe. With the Lord's favor and his blessings, great things occur. Even the weak can say, I am strong. He is the rock where our footing will be sure. 
In him is safety and nothing goes wrong. As the people of Israel grew into a great multitude, so God will increase you when your trust in him is sound. So keep your faith and remember your gratitude when he blesses you with blessings which astound. He is great and has done all great things for us. He is our God, our Lord, our precious Jesus. Our third thought today, bitter lives and hard bondage, verses 8 through 14. Verse 8 says, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Albert Barnes notes this, and it's an important insight he gave. The expressions in this verse are special and emphatic. A new king is a phrase not found elsewhere. It is understood by most commentators to imply that he did not succeed his predecessor in the natural order of descent and inheritance. He arose up over Egypt, occupying the land as it would seem on different terms from the king whose place he took, either by usurpation or conquest. It needs to be remembered from Genesis that Joseph in that, at that time pictured Christ and Pharaoh pictured God's rule from heaven. The 430-year period from Abraham until the Exodus is divided into two exact equal parts of 215 years each. This time in Egypt, then, is reflective of the tribulation in the book of Revelation, which is also divided into two equal parts. If this is a new king who doesn't know Joseph, then his dynasty is a picture of the coming Antichrist. The pattern is given so that we can see in Israel's redemption other pictures of history. We can see our own redemption from sin and being brought into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. But we can also see the end times where Christ will deliver Israel from the power of the Antichrist. Who this king of Egypt is cannot be t determined for certain, and many scholars like to argue over the dating of who the person is. But if his name were important, it would have been given. The Bible always gives the names when they're important. It wasn't given, and so it really doesn't matter. What does matter is who he pictures and how he treats God's chosen people, who is Israel. For him to not know who Joseph is in such a short period isn't at all unusual either, because people say, well, oh, that's just not true. He would have known who Joseph was. And so we have to go through each one of these points to make sure that we understand why the Bible says these things. First, we don't remember the great works of our past leaders even a generation later. Some ignore the great leaders within a few years after they're gone. We've got a guy in the White House right now that certainly doesn't remember what happened in the 1980s. He's completely dismissed it. And secondly, if he came in by conquest, then he would not be aware of the history of the previous rulers. This is not an improbable verse, and it reflects what could be said about the Antichrist quite well. A description of the coming Antichrist is found in the book of Daniel, and it reflects this perfectly. So let me read you this. Think of this guy here and what he's picturing. Then the king shall do according to his own will. He shall exalt and magnify himself above every god, shall speak blasphemies against the god of gods, and shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished. For what has been determined shall be done. He shall regard neither the god of his fathers, nor the desire of women, nor regard any god, for he shall exalt himself above them all. Kind of sounds like this guy, if you know the story of, of uh, Exodus, as is going to be coming to us. Verse 9, then he said to his people, the term his people here is being used in an antithetical manner to the term the children of Israel that we just saw. The king's people doesn't necessarily mean all of the people of Egypt, but rather those who are aligned with him. As we're going to see in the next sermon and throughout the rest of the book, there will be people in Israel or in Egypt who support Israel and who are favorable to them. 
We see this in our own government where the leader may despise a portion of the people, and yet the general populace may not feel the same way about them. If you think of a president, you know, who might be in office at any given time, and he may not like the Christians very much, and yet the population as a whole likes the Christians. And that's kind of a good parallel right there. Verse 9 continues, Look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. The adjectives of this verse, more and mightier, are given as a parallel to the terms multiply and mighty back in verse 7. First, the Bible notes that their great multiplication came about, and then the new king of the land acknowledges it. Now, whether his statement is true in the absolute sense, meaning they're more and mightier than we are, it is certainly true that Israel had flourished in an exceedingly great way. This is true in both numbers of people and in livestock as well. This was already seen being the case many, many years earlier while Joseph was still alive. So let me read you this from Genesis 47. It says, So Israel dwelt in the land of Egypt, in the country of Goshen, and they had possessions there and grew and multiplied exceedingly. God had promised Abraham that he would bless him, and he did. This blessing passed on to Isaac and then to Jacob. From Jacob, the same blessing rested upon the entire family who came from him. There is no doubt that the wealth and power of Israel was great in the land by the time of this new king. Verse 10 goes on. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them. The word shrewdly here is chakam. Literally, it means wisely. There was a problem which the king had perceived as dangerous, and it would require wisdom to handle it. What does one do with a group of people who are great in number, living on the borders of the land, and who are not allied with you? The Israelites had retained their own identity and had not become a part of the greater Egyptian culture, and now it seemed as though they were a threat to the empire. It is a scene which has been repeated countless times throughout Israel's history. They are a people who are set apart and who inevitably find themselves to be considered a threat to the nation in which they dwell. Just think of Nazi Germany. Think of that right there. Think of the Russians. They're always considered a threat when they're not. They're peaceful, but they, they don't understand the mindset of this group of people, and it causes all kinds of trouble in the world. Verse 10 continues. Lest they multiply and it happen in the event of war, that they also join our enemies and fight against us, and so go up out of the land. Because they were between Canaan and Egypt, and because that is where the threat of invaders into Egypt was most prevalent, it was more than a small concern that an invading army might benefit from the presence of Israel. If they hadn't mixed in with the Egyptians, then there may have been a reason that he simply didn't understand. He may think that they're allied with people who are already opposed to him. If this were so, not only would they join him in any battle, but then they may retreat with them when they left. Again, this is the same mindset that has been seen throughout Israel's history. There are people who are set off by themselves. They don't interact with the people. They do interact with them. They just don't assimilate into them. And that's what happens. This is a people who are always seemingly content where they live and in the surroundings where they find themselves. In general, they're very productive members of the society, but their productivity benefits them and their people to the point that both loathing and jealousy are the natural result. Verse 11, therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens. Because of Pharaoh's fears of the Israelites, he set taskmasters over the people. The word taskmasters here comes from two separate words, sarei nisim. A comparable translation would be chief of tributes. These taskmasters then would exact tribute from the people in labor, but more probably also in very heavy taxes. 
collections of their, their money and, you know, what they've earned over the years. Like any oppressive government, they would steal both the people's wealth and their health. In the case of the Israelites, they were afflicted with heavy burdens using a Hebrew word, sibla, which is found only six times in the entire Old Testament. And guess what? All six times are found in the first six chapters of the book of Exodus. It comes from another word, which indicates a heavy, heavy load. It is as if the burden is being highlighted as more unusual of an affliction than any suffered elsewhere, any time in the history of the people of Israel. It is unique to the time of Israel's time in Egypt. Verse 11 goes on. And they built for Pharaoh supply cities, Pitom and Ramses. Some translations will call this treasure cities, meaning that there's like gold or something stored in there. But supply cities is certainly a better choice. In 1 Kings chapter 9, Solomon built cities using the exact same word, which are described in this way. And Solomon built Gezer, Lower Beth Horon, Baalath, and Tadmor in the wilderness in the land of Judah. All the storage cities that Solomon had, cities for his chariots and cities for his cavalry. And whatever Solomon desired to build in Jerusalem and Lebanon and in all the land of his dominion. These cities, built with the effort of the Israelites, were in the general area of Goshen and would have been filled with supplies for warfare that may be conducted at any given time. The name Pitom means house of Atum. Atum is the sun god, and so basically it means the house of the sun. And Ramses means child of the sun. Verse 12. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. I don't know if you know this, but this is exactly how the world works. If you think of Somalia or some really poor country with uh, you know, poverty and with almost no food, they have baby after baby after baby. The more depressed and downtrodden a group becomes, the more they multiply. The more affluent and at ease a culture is, the less they multiply. The very affliction that was levied on the Israelites is what caused them to multiply even more. The word from which the word grew comes from is sometimes translated as spread out. They simply expanded in all directions. The same word was used in Genesis chapter 30 to describe the increase of Laban's wealth after the arrival of Jacob. If you remember, he went up there and Laban wasn't a real wealthy guy, but when Jacob got done, he had all kinds of money. There it says this, you know, this is Jacob speaking to Laban, you know how I've served you and how your livestock has been with me. For what you had before I came was little, but it has increased to a great amount. The Lord has blessed you since my coming. And so you see the parallel with the growth of the people of Israel and the time in Egypt. Verse 12 continues, and they were in dread of the children of Israel. The word dread here is appropriate. One scholar, a guy named Kalish, says that they had a horror of the children of Israel. It's an attitude which has been repeated again and again and again in the history of Israel. It is the same attitude that's seen in the world today and which will result in the coming tribulation period, which is being pictured by the very verses that we're looking at right here. Verse 13, so the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor. The word for rigor here is a very rare and it's an unusual word. It's beferek. It's used just six times in the entire Old Testament and it is always used in connection with being unusually harsh to someone as they work under another person. The Aramaic root of the word indicates to break in pieces or maybe to crush. This was the harshness of the taskmaster who ruled over the Israelites. Now one might ask, why would God allow his own people to suffer in this way? The answer, though not palatable to most, is that they had forgotten the Lord their God. 
And so we can look at our own lives and the people around us when we suffer and we can say, what is it that's caused us to suffer in this way? It's because we've forgotten the Lord our God. And there are two passages from elsewhere in the Old Testament that absolutely prove this. The first comes from Joshua chapter 24. There it says this. Now, therefore, fear the Lord. This is after they've come into Canaan. They've done the conquest and Joshua is instructing the people on how to live properly. Fear the Lord. Serve him in sincerity and in truth and put away the gods which your father served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. And then he said, serve the Lord. In Ezekiel, it's even more explicit. Listen to what he says to him in Ezekiel 20. Say to them, thus says the Lord God, on the day when I chose Israel and raised my hand in an oath to the descendants of the house of Jacob and made myself known to them in the land of Egypt, I raised my hand in an oath to them saying, I am the Lord your God. On that day, I raised my hand and oath to them to bring them out of the land of Egypt into a, uh, uh, where was I? A land that I had searched out for them, flowing with milk and honey, the glory of all lands. Then I said to them, each of you, throw away the abominations which are before his eyes and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. But he says, but they rebelled against me and would not obey me. They did not cast away the abominations which were before their eyes, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. In their move to Egypt, they may not have assimilated in with the people of Egypt, but they did assimilate into their pagan practices. If that doesn't represent Israel of today, I'm not sure what does. Though they are united and they're a uniform group, their allegiances to one another do not necessarily follow through to the Lord. Again, the picture we're seeing here is a picture of the tribulation period. The people of Israel will suffer greatly until they call on the Lord Jesus Christ as they should. Verse 14, and they made their lives bitter with hard bondage and mortar and brick. In their desire to subjugate Israel, the hard service they demanded of them was making bricks and then using brick and mortar to build the store cities and whatever other edifices that were mandated. The last time that these words, mortar and brick were used in the Bible was at the building of the Tower of Babel. Interestingly, they were also used in the exact same verse, Genesis 11, verse 3, just as they are here in Exodus 1, verse 14. At the Tower of Babel, they were used to oppose God by defying his mandate to spread out and fill the earth. Instead, they attempted to unite and build a tower to heaven, a picture of works-based salvation. They also were working in disbelief of his promise to never flood the world again by building a tower that would be taller than the floodwaters. It was an attempt by man to have control over creation, a perfect picture of those who profess to global warming and our need to solve the world's flood problems, which actually do not exist. In this account, they are using the brick and the mortar to oppose God by harming his chosen people. And it is an attempt to thwart his purposes in the plan of redemption. If they can destroy the people of God, then God's promises and his plans will have failed. This is also a picture then of the coming tribulation period and the one world government and religion which we call Mystery Babylon. It will be a complete opposition to God, just as both testaments of the Bible bear out. In both instances, however, good news, God's plans will prevail because he is God. The word for brick here is Levana. It's used to indicate a brick which is made by man for man. It is temporary and it is without any true substance. In contrast to this is stone or rock which is made by God and which indicates permanence and that which does not yield. 
In both of these accounts, there's a contrast. There is the using of bricks to work against God, Tower of Babel. And then there is the use of working in bricks to work against God's people, which is in Egypt. They contrast, and yet they confirm the thought that man's efforts are futile against the works and plans of God. The Bible is showing us this. Verse 14 continues, and in all matter of service in the field. Not only were the people subjected to the physical labors of brickwork, but to all manner of service in the field. The Israelites started out as shepherds, but they also moved into agriculture. We see that recorded in Deuteronomy chapter 11. But this is probably not the full extent of the work that they did out in the fields. They were probably used to dig canals for irrigation. And so the mud that they dug would have been used for the clay, which made the brick and mortar. In all, the work would have been very tedious. It would have been tiring. And imagine it out in the oppressive heat of Egypt's boiling sun. The life of these Israelites could surely have been described perfectly as misery. Verse 14 finishes with these words. All their service in which they made them serve was with rigor. Again, the term for rigor, that word beforek is used. The taskmaster would have been cruel and relentless, like the treatment of the slaves of the South in America. The Israelites themselves would have been beaten at will and they would have been treated as mere animals of burden. Again, it has to be remembered that the Lord's people suffered because they had forsaken the Lord. Ezekiel makes this absolutely clear. His people are not immune from his punishments when they're needed for correction. But God will never leave, and he will never forsake those he has called. Despite all of their rejections, both in Egypt and many, many times afterward, as recorded in the Bible and as recorded in history itself, God has promised to keep Israel and to save Israel. He told them in advance of all of the horrors that would come upon them. He told them in Leviticus 26. He told them in Deuteronomy chapter 28. These are going to come if you disobey me. And he implied in his words to them that they would be exiled twice as well. But he also showed them in advance when they would be returned and what he would do for them after they were returned. He told them explicitly at the uh, before the uh, uh, exile to Babylon. It's going to be 70 years before you returned. Daniel read Jeremiah and said it's 70 years. Time to return us, Lord. And then if you know the prophecy from Ezekiel 4, it tells exactly, exactly that Israel would be returned to the land of Israel in 1948 and that they would again capture Jerusalem in 1967. God showed us these things in advance so that we would know that he has a plan and a purpose for these people. If nothing else, God's faithfulness to unfaithful Israel should show us that his promises are true to us as well. In Christ Jesus, we have the absolute surest foundation of all. We have the greatest hope and we have the most wonderful future ahead of us. Whatever things we're suffering now, whatever they are, they may be our fault or they may merely be God's grace by allowing us to be in a low valley before he takes us up to the high mountaintop. So don't be overly frustrated. Israel got through their hardships, and you will as well. But this assumes that you belong to God. This can only be true if you belong to Jesus Christ. If you haven't called on him as Lord, you are not a child of God. If you have, then you are God's child through adoption. And if not, you're still his enemy because of sin. So I'd ask for another minute, as I do each week, to explain to you how you can be reconciled to God through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. The Bible says, as I just said, you have sin in you. The Bible says that all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. And the Bible also says that the wages of sin is death. We die because of sin. But there's two types of death that the Bible speaks of. The first is 
the physical death that we die, when our physical bodies wear out and we go back into the grave, but there is the spiritual death. And that actually came before we were born. It happened in Adam. And so every human being that is born in Adam is born spiritually disconnected from God. And unless that, that death is corrected before the physical death comes, you'll be separated from God for all eternity. But God has given us a provision in his word by sending Jesus Christ to live the perfect life that you and I can't live. He was spiritually connected to the Father and he gave up his life willingly for us. And so if we put our trust in him, calling on the name of the Lord, saying, Jesus, I've sinned and I want you to forgive me, then we are spiritually reborn at that moment. And the proof of it is the resurrection. Jesus Christ came out of the grave. If the wages of sin is death and he came out of the grave, then obviously he had no sin of his own. And we can participate in that true life, which is life, by being forgiven through his precious blood. So if you've never done it, please ask Jesus Christ to forgive you of your sins. Be reconciled to God the Father. Be a child of God. All right? Our uh, closing verse today comes from Isaiah chapter 48. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I will do it. For how should my name be profaned? And I will not give my glory to another. That's why we go through fires and trials. That's why Israel did. It's because of God's holy namesake. His holy namesake is all that matters. And when we understand that and we put our trust in him, we're glorifying him. That's what he asked for. Just trust the Lord. Next week is Genesis 1, 15 through 22. Obeying God rather than men. That'll be your second Exodus sermon. And I have something new to tell you. I, For the past 13 weeks, I've told you something very particular to the book of Ruth. Well, this week I've amended it for the book of Exodus. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. Even if a deep ocean lies ahead of you, he can part the waters and he can lead you through it on dry ground. So follow him and trust him and let him do marvelous things for you and through you. And I have a poem today for you. We've got a couple people that are new to this format. Um, when I did the book of Ex uh, Genesis, I did a poem of the entire book of Genesis. And then we did Ruth and we have a poem of the entire book of Ruth. And so each week as I do the, the verses, I turn them into a poem format. And so someday, unless the Lord comes first, either you know by calling me home because of whatever or uh, maybe through the rapture, we'll have another uh, poem of the book of Exodus soon. But this is Exodus 1 through 14. It's called Bitterness and Bondage in the Land of Egypt. Now these are the names of the children of Israel who came to Egypt, each man in his household, came with Jacob as the Bible does tell. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah too, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher are who? The sons who are descended from him. All those who are descendants of Jacob we see were 70 persons, for Joseph was in Egypt already. And Joseph died, all his brothers, and all that generation, all the fathers and mothers. But the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly like ground properly tilled and multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty, and the land with them was filled. Now there over Egypt, a new king arose who did not know Joseph, and to his people he said, Look how the people of the children of Israel quickly grows. They are more and mightier than we. Look at how they have bred. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, all right? Lest they multiply, and it happen in the event of war, that they also join our enemies and against us fight. And so go up out of the land, and we have them no more. Therefore they set taskmasters over them, with their burdens to them afflict. And they built for Pharaoh supply cities, 
Pitom and Ramses. They were demanding and strict. But the more they afflicted them, it is true, as the word to us does tell, the more they multiplied and grew, and they were in dread of the children of Israel. So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor such painful toil, and they made their lives bitter with hard bondage there on Egypt's soil. In mortar, in brick, they worked, we observe, and in all manner of service in the field. All their service in which they made them serve was with rigor in order to make Israel yield. Israel suffered through long years of pain and toil, but eventually God sent them a deliverer because God is ever faithful and loyal to his promises. They are certain and sure. And God has sent a deliverer to us as well. He has brought us out of our life of sin and chains by sending his son to deliver us from the grasp of hell and to be granted a heavenly seat where Jesus reigns. Such is the marvelous workings of God. So let us praise him all our days as in this life we trod. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this wonderful book of Exodus and we look forward to exploring it. There are so many treasures in it. It's such a beautiful, beautiful part of your holy word. We thank you for it. We ask that in the uh, weeks and months and even years ahead that you would just give us uh, the ability to perceive what you have in there, but to rightly handle it as well, not to deviate from what you would have us uh, to learn so that our doctrine will be pure and perfect and that will be approved in your sight. And Lord God, you know that there are some great needs that are uh, have been uh, raised up to us. Even in this church, we have one from Darla. She has a specific prayer need that uh, is on our hearts and we'd like to... Uh, have you remember that, Lord, and to take care of the need that she gave us before the service started. And for any other person here that's suffering through whatever trial, that they can look at the book of Exodus and understand that sometimes these things happen because of our own fault. Sometimes they happen just because you're gracious enough to allow it to happen. But either way, we would look beyond that affliction and hope for release from it and to be lifted to high, high clouds where we can sit with you and just cherish you and, and rejoice in you. Even if it's on this earth, our spirits will be there. And maybe someday soon, you'll be actually taking us there. We can't wait for that day. How great you are. How glorious you are. All hail the Lamb of God, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so it's in his name we pray. Amen. We get the instruction for the Lord's Supper directly from the book of 1 Corinthians. It's in the 11th chapter. And there Paul wrote us these words. And uh, I do add in a blessing over it. Other than that, I don't want to add to the Bible or take away. I just want to say the words that the Lord would have said over it as, uh, on his night before he was crucified. But other than that, we get the words directly from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where he writes this. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And he would have given thanks over it by proclaiming these words. Baruch Ata Adonai Eloheinu, Melech HaOlam, HaMotzi Lechem, Min HaAretz. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And he broke it, and he said, Take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after the supper, saying a blessing over it as well. Baruch Ata Adonai Eloheinu, Melech HaOlam, Borei Peri HaGuffin. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread 
and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Amen. Glorious Heavenly Father, thank you for the <clears throat> table which you've prepared for us. Thank you that we can remember the work of the Lord now, until he comes again, and anticipate the greater table which is ahead, where we sit in your presence for all eternity, reveling in the work of the Lord Jesus, who got us to that place and by him alone are we saved through his grace. We thank you for that. And Lord, we also do pray for Elaine, who's traveling right now, that you would bring her back here safely. Give uh, Paul uh, uh, a good time while he's here alone and help him to uh, focus on your word until she comes and they can share it together again. We'd also pray for uh, Cope and Ann, who are traveling, that they make it back here tonight safely. And for anybody else that has a need or... Uh, a desire in their heart that needs to be met, Lord, we would ask that you would meet that. You're great, you're glorious, you are wonderful. Thank you for the table of the Lord, our Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Amen.